Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. Hello. Hi, Derek. Baby. Hi. Lover. How's it going? Sweetie. <laughs> That's Amy, just in case you didn't know. Oh, uh, Okay. I'm not disappointed. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning, both of you. I hope you've been pouring bourbon in your coffee this morning. Uh, no, I should be, huh? Well, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. If I, I can, I can always pour some in uh, midway through uh, if I need a little fuel. All right. Well, I hope we won't be that trying on you that you, you have to resort to drinking to get through it. No, 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 not at all. You're going to go use power tools after this. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, pretty pretty likely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, better, I better hold off. <laughs> I am a little over-caffeinated, though, so I might need to take the edge off anyway. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie. I'm Amy, and this is Clever. Today, we're talking to Derek Chen. He's the CEO and design director of Council, which is an American modern furniture brand based in San Francisco. He's also an interior designer, product designer, and maker and manufacturer of complex and beautiful things. He grew up in Urbana, Illinois, and studied electrical engineering before starting a career as a management consultant. After working his way up and around the world as a problem-solving management consultant, he became a CTO and creative director of a dot-com during the second dot-com boom in San Francisco. 
Having cultivated a love of design and a love of working with nice people, he founded Council, his first love and second career. Now Council is in its 11th year and has an illustrious roster of designers, both established and emerging. It's also been featured regularly in all the most credible design publications like Design Milk. And council pieces are well represented in celebrity homes and high design headquarters of companies like Airbnb, Facebook, Google, and the list goes on and on. Oh, and full disclosure, because I have exquisite taste, he's also my lover. <laughs> Longtime Clever listeners may have heard me talk about him in episode three. So now that you have the exploded view, let's talk to Derek Chen. My name is Derek Chen. I work in San Francisco. I run a company called Council, which is a modern American furniture company. I think it'll be clear that there's really nothing else I could do. <laughs> um, and that's why I do that. <laughs> I have a hard time believing that's true. Well, for, for all the right reasons, right? It's the only thing that I think I could throw my heart into. And eventually, you are only good at what your heart's in. Mm. Yes, passion is very important. Let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up? What was your family dynamic like? Did you have siblings? Where did you live? I was born in New Haven, Connecticut, but I really spent the bulk of my youth to, to young adulthood in Urbana, Illinois, um, which is a university town in pretty much the middle of Illinois. I'd say it was a pretty idyllic upbringing, you know, the kind of place where I rode my bike everywhere, didn't lock it. We didn't lock our doors, just running wild on in the streets. <laughs> we were pretty free growing up. I have a younger sister and uh, she actually lives in California now as well, just as do my parents. At that time, my father was a professor at the University of Illinois and, um, and that's what he's been, you know, my entire life, I guess, until he retired about 10 years ago. My mother, some of that time was working also as a teacher of English as a second language, but it also you know, spent much of that time as a full-time mother. So you're first-generation Chinese-American. Your parents came over from China during their lifetime. Can you talk to us about why your parents immigrated to the United States and then how your Chinese heritage kind of intermingled with your American idyllic upbringing experience? My parents actually met in the United States, but they both came over to the States in a roundabout way for the same reason, really, which was that the, the communists basically kicked him out of China. In my father's case, or rather my grandfather's case on, his, on my father's side, he was actually a general on the nationalist side, so lost the war, went to Taiwan for a little while, and then my dad came to the United States to study. And I think that's a pretty common narrative for people who've come over to the States. My mother's path to the United States was a little bit more rough. It started with her father receiving a Fulbright scholarship to study at Cornell. So he was already over here um, when the communists shut the borders, leaving my mom and my mom's siblings and my grandmother uh, to kind of fend for themselves and to find a way to escape. Eventually, my grandmother sewed their passports into the lining of her purse. They took a train overnight and escaped through Hong Kong in a multi-month process, and then came to the States and actually landed in Hampton, Virginia. In the meantime, her father knew that he couldn't go back, so he found a job at what was then called Hampton Institute, which is now called Hampton University, which is one of the historically black colleges uh, in the United States. And they took him on as a physics professor, 
and my mom's family joined him there briefly before actually he sort of suddenly passed away and they found themselves in Hampton, Virginia, a little bit on their own. So wait, after a multi-month process of figuring out how to escape communist China with passports sewn into the lining of her purse, they landed in Hampton and then your grandfather died almost shortly after they arrived? Yeah, just months after they arrived, actually. He died of, I think, a a brain aneurysm or something like that. Suddenly there they were, a now single mother, and my mom and her three siblings were in Hampton, Virginia. I have to express appreciation for the, the Hampton University actually did a wonderful job of welcoming them. They allowed them to stay in university housing. They found, maybe even manufactured a job for my grandmother, um, and really helped them get on their feet. So it's an interesting story, I think. I mean, it's a lot of immigrant experiences are about American symbolism, um, but also about refuge, you know, and mm-hmm. how this country um, can take people in. This is one case where not only the country took them in, but they were sort of taken in by a community. It's a black college. They were taken in by the African-American community. And and I've come to find out afterwards that Hampton University is something they've always done, which is just sort of take people in. It's known as a historical black university, but it it was also one of the early institutions to educate Native Americans who weren't mm. able to go to other universities. And so there's a great Native American population that's gone through school there. So it's, it was really already in their culture to take them in. And my mom has these wonderful stories of kind of growing up and going to Southern Baptist churches and listening to the choirs and this really colorful upbringing in Hampton, Virginia. That's sort of the background script that informed your parents' perspective? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, you know, America is a lot of things and it, it's refuge, and but it's also a symbol. And the idea of everybody belonging, you know, not only do you belong here, but the idea of America belongs to you. You know, you're American now, no matter how, what you look like, no matter where you come from, you're American now. So, so uh, what can you do to make this country your own? How can you contribute to it? And and I would say that that's, that's always been something that has run through my family. I think, you know, choosing careers in education um, is, is one of the ways that that manifests. That's, that's a way to give back. But of course, you know, we're also Chinese-American and Chinese-looking. So there's always been this thread of, of being a little bit different also. So, you know, to, to whatever extent we feel... American, we also know that we look different. I actually have an early memory of seeing a, a photograph of my parents. And it's hilarious, actually, kind of, because it's a photo of them and they're, you know, they're wearing Ray-Ban Wayfarers and my mom's wearing this skirt and they're leaning on like a, a Chevy Bel Air in like <laughs> 1961 or something like that. And it looks like, you know, I don't know, they look like uh, Richie Cunningham or Sandra D or something like yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Except the Chinese. So it's, I don't know, to me, it was a little bit like, well, you know, we're kind of the same, but we're kind of different. <laughs> and growing up in Urbana, Illinois, I was, I, I felt 100% American, but kind of different. I would say that that's been kind of a gift to me. It feels, you know, I, I never for a moment feel like I don't belong here, but I do feel like I've got a foot somewhere else or at least a toe somewhere else. And that gives me a perspective and an objectivity, the way I look at things and uh, the way I look at being American and the idea of being American. Jamie and I have talked with other guests who have 
an immigration story or who have come from somewhere else. And well, Daniel Liebelskin in particular, where, you know, he was so profoundly affected by his transition from post-war Poland to the United States that he, he felt like it was the promised land and he never took it for granted. And Jamie and I both generic white girls kind of grew up <laughs> in suburban neighborhoods. And yeah, we appreciate America, but we also take it for granted until you kind of get older and have the wisdom to, to really respect and appreciate what's going on here. And it sounds like you kind of had that respect and appreciation all through growing up in your formative years. I think it's a respect and appreciation and a love for this country, but also I think it's a perspective. It's really hard to see something when you're really, really within it, right? You kind of have to step outside it or you have to step, you have to see it from the edges and things are kind of defined by their boundaries and the outsides of them. So you have to have been somewhere else to understand what we have here. You can't see yourself in the mirror if your nose is an inch from the glass. You really have to step back a little bit. So your mom was in the South, and then you said that you were born in Connecticut, right? So how did that happen? Did they meet in Connecticut, or did they meet down South? They met in Boston, actually. People always talk about, you know, Army babies traveling all over the country, you know, from Army base to Army base. I was an education baby, a professor baby. You know, there aren't that many jobs in education. So I was born at Yale. My parents had met in Boston when my dad was at MIT. My mom went to Cornell. So I guess all of that is what sort of brought them to eventually Urbana, Illinois, where my dad was a professor. So where did you get your creative spark from? Because you so your dad is a professor. Does your mom also work or was she um, stay at home or I don't know, did she have a hobby of painting or drawing? She stayed at home, but I'll... Oh, this is an aside, but we may as well start talking about modern design. The Midwest was kind of the birth of modern design, birthplace of modern design in this country, at least in my in my exposure to it. You know, a lot of it came out of Michigan and the manufacturing. Herman Miller and Noel and... Yeah, Herman Miller, Noel and Ford and GM and the Saarinens and all of this, mm-hmm. right? That's all Michigan stuff. And I grew up in the Midwest, and and my parents were really interested in design. We had a lot of these mid-century furniture pieces in our homes. And I also think that there was sort of a DIY culture, you know, back then in the late 60s and early 70s. Because I do have early memories of my parents, you know, on hands and knees in the living room, painting, making this big painting that would live on the wall of our house until... Sadly, I found out they threw it away <laughs> about 10 years ago. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, that, well, that's an early memory and a, and a formative memory because the idea of creativity was something that was always with me. I never thought it was a weird thing or a departure. But, you know, all kinds of things. Like we, I remember tumbling rocks in a rock tumbler and cutting bottles and turning them into glasses and all that stuff was stuff my parents did. So it seemed really natural for me to you know, to do what everybody did, tinker toys and Legos and and then eventually hammers and nails and, and things like that. I actually still have a hammer. It's in my shop. And uh, up until a couple years ago, my phone number, like the, the phone number that I, it, it's a Derek Chen, 3678789. Like my mom put it on my hammer <laughs> as if I was going to like take it to school and lose it or something like that. <laughs> 
but I, I still use this hammer and uh, it's still in my shop. Oh, but, that's so cute. But I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> what was the teenage Derek Chen like? Were you rebellious or were you, um, you know, obedient? Tell me all about it. I guess I was neither. I mean, the other aspect of the immigrant experience is I think, you know, many immigrants really, really appreciate the idea of education. And I was a decidedly mediocre student. So I went to this high school that uh, I, I had a class of 35. It was a nice small high school. And the, the fun thing about it was that it scraped off, you know, a nerdy population <laughs> of, of <laughs> academically focused kids, stuck them in a high school, and then all the other sort of subgroups of any high school kind of formed again. So, you know, there were the nerds, of course, the nerds among nerds, but there were also the jocks and the and the stoners and all of this stuff. So I ended up sort of a jock among nerds in, in this little <laughs> school. <laughs> but it was nice, actually, because it, it was an opportunity to remake myself. Any, any kind of rebelliousness that I might have felt, I think, kind of, I had my little crowd to run around with and we did our sports and stuff and I, I don't think I was particularly rebellious I just maybe was a little bit of a disappointment academically <laughs> so during these nerdy slash jock teenage years you know did any of that creativity manifest itself in any particular way I was building things all the time like I was making furniture as a teenager like a lot of young boys we made ramps to jump off of we made strange toys that would, you know, little cars that would crash and we'd end up scraping all our skin off on the street. I mean, <laughs> things like that, I think was all really pretty normal. I think most kids I knew had a garage with tools in it and, and we used those tools. We didn't have any really dangerous tools like power tools. So, you know, hitting your thumb with a hammer was the kind of injury we would get. <laughs> but I, I know you've told me stories about some sort of contraptions you would make like didn't you figure out how to like string up your light switch so that you could pull the lights on and off from bed and stuff like that yeah <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> well my parents tell the story there's an earlier story i think i was like six years old and i had a like a super super messy room and um my parents tell this story with a little bit of pride but they they remember telling me to clean the room and then coming in and finding it spotless like 10 minutes later and then realizing that I had basically found a two by four and I just used it to bulldoze everything under the bed. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, th things like that. Yeah, the system to turn my lights on and off from my bed was basically like string and bent coat hangers and tape, lots of tape. That was a, that was a commodity of my use, I remember, like, mom, can I have more tape? I use tape for everything. I would just tape things together. And there was just so much tape just stuck to the walls to make this contraption work. But yeah, I could turn off the light from my bed so I didn't have to worry about any boogeyman or anything. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly and they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. 
Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. After high school, you ended up going to college. And what did you study there? Where did you go? And did you really start getting into design at that point? You know, I would say this is actually where I sort of started departing from design. And, you know, like every kid knows how to play. And, you know, my way of playing was to make things and rig up, you know, these tape creations. And I guess it seemed like at this point, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to prepare myself to be an adult. It's time to think about some less fun things to do. And I went in and studied engineering because that seemed like the thing to do. You know, engineering seemed like a way to take a bit of creativity and turn it into a real job. Mm -hmm. Um, But if there's one thing that I think I've learned is you don't really have to stop playing. I I wish I'd spent a little bit more time thinking about what I would really enjoy and had studied that in school. So anyway, I I departed a bit. I went and I studied electrical engineering. um, And as I went through the four, four and a half years of college, things got less and less, you know, the things that excited me about engineering and more and more abstract, you know, Mm. I I was trying to imagine electrons jumping over barriers. And I ended up doing a lot of quantum physics. And suddenly I found myself uh, with a degree I didn't want. (laughs) So there was, I guess, uh, graduating with a degree in electrical engineering. My parents sort of hoping and expecting me to go on to a PhD program so I could be a professor like everybody else in the family. But in my case, the way out was uh, to go into management consulting. You know, back then, this was 1989 when I graduated, a lot of the large accounting firms had started consulting organizations and recognized that there seemed to be this pool of disgruntled engineers who were really good at solving problems, but wanted to do something else. And uh, they really tapped into that. And I, I, you know, I was among those that went into this, uh, this, that field, I I guess in the late eighties, early nineties. And what did that look like? You're just out of college and you're working in as a management consultant. I I know from talking to you, that meant suits and traveling the world um, and solving problems for big corporations. What does a management (laughs) consultant do? I have no idea. Well, you do all kinds of things. I mean, back then I was a, they they put me on basically computer stuff. The word management in there really probably doesn't belong there, at least not in those early years, but it's actually sort of what Amy would describe um, all the superficial stuff. Like you're traveling the world and wearing a suit and feeling important, even though, (laughs) We probably weren't very important. It was it was still a great experience. I don't know. I, I I still look back on those years and feel like like I felt at that time like I was pretending to be an adult, you know, playing dress up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but just the same, you know, I got to go to all these great places and work on these teams, work really hard with other twenty two year olds who were wearing suits, and yeah, it was it was really fun. It started to be fun again, you know. Yeah, and you had disposable income, so you could enjoy the food and the places and the culture where you were, because you'd go and live there for a bit, right? Yeah, we go there and live there for a bit, and not only was I getting paid, which, I don't know, $30,000, which seemed like infinity to me, um, but we were also getting a per diem, so, you know, we lived really well, and we're exposed to, you know, in my case, Buenos Aires, Madrid, 
New York, Toronto. Um, I was all over and it was really fun. Yeah, that sounds like a really great experience being able to get exposed to all kinds of different cultures and actually spend time in those places and enjoy it rather than just like traveling there and then coming right back on a plane. So that's, yeah, that's really cool. I, I would say to this day, that's sort of my, that's become my model for how to travel. I think, you know, I don't really want to do the superficial postcard tour. I, you right. know, I already know what the Coliseum looks like. I want to know what these people sound like, what it smells like, what are they eating? Um, what do they do with their friends? And um, really, I, travel is not visual for me. It's it's cultural and it's fully immersive. I, I do think that kind of plays into a little bit how I work, you know, because it's been really interesting to me to study what it means to be an American designer and to design from an American perspective, because you travel around and things feel different. The coffee's different. Everything's different. And we know what Italian design is. We know what French design looks like, we know what Scandinavian design looks like, but what's American design? Uh, what are the cultural things that feed that, that, uh, that make American design the design that fits this experience of ours? Yeah, that's really interesting. You can't really put your finger on exactly what American design is. Well, you could in the mid-century era, but I feel like we've lost it a bit. Well, our society is very culturally diverse, so I just feel like it's you know, become kind of like a melting pot of design, just like it is of, of people. I would say a little bit, but actually that melting pot is really what American design is, as far as I'm concerned. If you, if you look back to the mid-century, what did this melting pot have in common? Well, you know, we were coming out of wartime. Um, we had all, all this great productivity and ingenuity and engineering, right? We had this manufacturing powerhouse, uh, that was just looking for direction. Mm-hmm. And then we had this thread of sort of inclusive optimism, right? Let's, we're, we're in a position to do something great. Let's do something beautiful. Let's do something great. And yeah, you have this, you know, when I think of Charles and Ray Eames, of course, I think of Los Angeles and the wide boulevards and the palm trees and, and this land of opportunity. And, um, but, but if you also look who designed the quote-unquote American things in the mid-century. I mean, it was people like um, Eero and Elio Saarinen, right? They're Finnish background. They're not the uh, red, white, and blue on the Mayflower Americans that you'd imagine. They're like Alexander Girard, who I think was born in New York, but um, but I think he was raised in Florence. Yeah, yeah people like Jens Riesum, and, and, and it's not really... Um, yeah, the American experience is this melting pot experience, and really what makes it an American experience, I think, was this optimistic hope and opportunity and belief and all of that that came out of the post-war period. Just sort of looking forward and, and fast-forwarding 50 years, yeah, that's not the America we live in today, but we do have something, right? And it's, it's a question of how do you capture that or how do you feel that uh, in a way that uh, manifest itself into products. To an extent, the world has become a little bit more homogeneous, but there, there still is stuff. We're, we're still the land of opportunity. We're still optimistic. We're still this, this melting pot. And how, how does that become something that's, um, that's American design? Going back to the idea of being able to feel it, you know, like that, that's one thing that I think is important. Like we can sit here and we can objectively observe that Italian design is low and sleek. And, you know, those are things you can objectively observe. But when you go there and 
you, you, you drink the espresso and the elegantly dressed people sound a certain way, it, it actually really does make sense. It's not necessarily, you know, a logical thing you can flowchart, but suddenly you feel it. You feel that this fits. And here we are in the United States. We know what it feels like to be here, but sometimes you have to step outside and look back at the United States and say, you know what, that's, that's what it is. That's America. And then it makes sense to feel it in, in the pieces, or at least that's what I hope we're doing, right? Creating pieces that feel American. When you were traveling the world as a management consultant, were you also kind of refining your eye and studying design? I mean, were you seeing how the world operates from all these different perspectives and how their design objects reflect their values and their culture? I think you could say that, but I think I was probably just observing it as culture. And maybe that's the same thing, but sort of observing how design is part of culture and observing these different cultures um, was definitely something I was doing. You know, an engineering principle is the law of conservation. You know, everything that comes out has to kind of come into a system. And I've always thought about design very much in terms of its inputs. I think a lot of people talk about creativity as if things are just sort of created. But in my mind, things aren't really created. I think things come into a system, they change shape a little bit, and they come out a little bit. So having a cultural experience and, um, you know, seeing things and liking them, seeing things and not liking them, and the news and all of these things are inputs. And I think a natural output, you know, is, is often a design object. So I don't know, that's uh, probably hard to, hard to describe, but I do think it's important to think about inputs. <laughs> so when I was traveling, I don't know if I was really studying design, but I think I was just sort of intaking culture and breathing it in and smelling it and hearing it and eating it. Those different cultures that I was taking in kind of became a bit of a perspective for me on what it really meant to have a national design identity. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard thing for me to, hard to describe. I don't know. That's always the challenge too. Like when people ask me about American design, I also have like a tough time kind of explaining it too. So I think what I would say is the American experience is different. The Scandinavian experience is different. And of course, it sort of manifests itself in objects. As a culture, the United States is relatively young, but we have, as a culture, had some formative experiences and we have some symbolic parts of our identity as well. You know, we, we talked earlier about how coming out of World War II was sort of a formative experience for our culture, and that was something that really fostered an era of creativity. And that creativity became part of the American identity. The same thing happens um, every day, maybe not on as dramatic a level, but, but we're different. And we have an experience, and we have culture, and it's different than, than what's experienced in Italy and Scandinavia and these other places. Well, let's talk a little bit about your uh, experience building an American design brand. You started a company called Urbana, and then that led you to found Council. Do you want to talk about that whole journey? Yeah, so I worked in technology till about 2001, 2002. And coming out of that experience, I knew I wanted to basically be a furniture designer. You know, what was fun for me was to go to the Milan Furniture Fair and to ICFF, which is the New York Furniture Show. And had enough exposure to know that I wanted to be a furniture designer. So I started this company called Urbana Design. Urbana, Illinois, happens to be the town that I grew up in, but 
I actually chose the name just because I liked the way it sounded. It has the word urban in it, but it also has sort of this Midwest twang. (laughs) (laughs) So um, to me, that seemed kind of an American experience that I had, you know, exposure to sort of urban environments, but understanding that there's this sort of this Midwestern flavor to it. Urbana Design was originally going to be a furniture brand, but eventually it became stuff that I was making home decor accessories, uh, mostly. Were you just making stuff in your garage or something? Yeah, exactly. I was making stuff in my garage. Eventually, <laughs> I, uh, I rented a shop and was making things across town, mm-hmm. uh, but it, it started in my garage. You know, one thing that's always interested me is like how to make things. So there was a lot of material exploration. So I found myself trying to invent ways to make things. So, you know, one of the things I made was a, was a wooden vase because it seemed like something that didn't make sense to make something made out of wood that would hold water. And I was also doing some bent plywood, resin-covered serving trays. It, it was cool to be able to invent ways of making things, but of course that meant that these things were inherently not outsourceable. So I found myself becoming more of a manufacturer than a designer and kind of found myself cornered a little bit by Urbana Design. You know, I mentioned I'd already been going to Milan and New York and really admired some of these international brands and admired a lot of the designers of the time who were able to design for all these companies. That's really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a designer, get paid by royalty, and Mm -hmm. have pieces at uh, at all these great brands like, you know, Capavini and Moroso. But you're just too damn good at figuring out how to build stuff. Well, yeah, there I was. I'm in my garage, right? (laughs) (laughs) Pouring resin. So around this time, I, I, you know, I was friends with a lot of people in the San Francisco design community, and many of them were kind of in the same boat. We all wanted to be designers. We all wanted to be designers on an international scale, but we had a hard time breaking into it. You know, you go over to Milan, you get one shot every year to meet people over there, and even if you do meet them, they're not going to work with you until they've met you two or three times. So there you go. Three years later, maybe you get a, maybe they'll send you a design brief. So that seemed really daunting. So, you know, with these other San Francisco friends, we said, Hey, let's just make a company. (laughs) We can, we can design some stuff. Let's produce it ourselves. We'll show it in New York at ICFF. Then we'll have pieces in production and then we'll have a much better, sort of jumping off point to our design careers as, as royalty based designers. So, so that was really the birth of council. The idea was that we could create this company. It didn't really matter at that point, how real the company was. We just wanted to get things in production and then we'd all be off on our merry way with our individual design careers. Nice. Very DIY. <laughs> but now council is very real. I mean, I, I would call you a, a design brand, a manufacturer, it's a lot of things. Can you give our listeners the overview of what Council is, the, the model of the business and, and the mission? The, the mission of Council is to advance American design. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's very simple and very difficult to articulate, but it, it's always good to be able to step back and say that that's really what we intend to do here is, is advance American design. Really, I would say Council is a brand. And underneath this brand, we produce beautiful things, working with primarily outside designers who get paid by royalty and working with largely outside manufacturers as well. That's, that's some of the nuts and bolts of it. I've heard you describe it sort of like a publishing house before. You curate the 
collection, the designers and the designs, and then figure out how to prototype them and manufacture them. Some, some of it's in-house, some of it's outsourced, and then you distribute. Is that accurate? That's exactly how we work with our creatives. It's actually not that unusual. I think a lot of companies work that way. Like if you look at a, well, if you look at Apple, sure, their, their designers are all in-house primarily. But other companies like, you know, we were talking about Charles and Ray Eames, and these are designers who worked on royalty for your, you know, Herman Millers and your Knowles and, uh, mm-hmm. and those companies. So we're really not that different than that. The designers we work with are similar to authors in a publishing house. You know, some publishing houses specialize in fiction, some in drama, some in pretty coffee table books, and we are the publishing house that believes its mission is to advance American design. So if Council's mission is to advance American design, why is it important for American design to have a distinct identity? What does that mean? I mean, do you see American design as a reflection of American values? Why is it important for you to have an identity? Why are you wearing what you're wearing today? I don't know if it's a mission that can be codified into, you know, cost benefit, importance, what's important, what's not. It's just, it's, it's identity. I'm, I'm American. Um, where's my design? You know, it's, it's that, right? You know, I look at the objects in my life that I grew up around and they're part of me. And, why shouldn't we want to push that forward? There are vibrant design cultures all over the world, you know, like Dutch design has its sort of whimsy and uh, we've spoken about Italian design and its elegance and, you know, what's ours? What's our identity? I met a design historian once who had this phrase, he'd say, objects don't lie. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, actually. I think the objects that we put out as part of our GDP are absolutely fossils of our existence. And I think that when, yeah, you're talking about an identity and it's, it's important to embrace all that we stand for here in this American experience. And I don't just mean like ethics and values. I mean, but you were talking about feel earlier, but to, to really capture the feel of America and represent it in our objects and have those be the future relics that tell the story of what existence was like. Yeah. Well, we did a little bit of that cultural anthropology earlier in this talk, right? When we talked about coming out of the second world war with this, you know, amazing productivity and this optimism and it created objects and you can see it in these objects, right? Molded plywood used for a chair and you feel it, right? And mm-hmm. that is a that is an archaeological object that describes the time, and it, it dovetails with the history, and it dovetails with the American experience. In creating this American design brand, you must have some sort of process to add a designer, or how do you choose the designers to work with for, for a collection? The, the design community is actually pretty small, and I'm not even talking about the American design community. I'm talking about the international design community. So most of the designers I work with, I will have already known them for some time uh, before I choose to work together. And as we know each other, they know the brand, and I know them. But is that something that's really important to you, to like have a relationship with the designer before you invite them to be part of it? Yeah, it it is important to me. I mean, not just personally, but I think it results in a better product. 
I, I don't know if I should go back to the publishing analogy again, but these things get edited a lot, right? And I don't mean edited as in I, I, I change it, but it's really a collaboration. The best product of our collaboration usually happens when I'm approached with a pretty young idea and we work together and combine, you know, what we know how to do with this idea and the project really lives for some time before a product actually happens. So in order to know that we're going to create a good product together, I have to know the person and and know how we're going to work together understand that they've had other brilliant ideas and see the product of things that they've done for other companies and to know that we're going to get along. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I've kind of seen the process up close because I know you so well. I've watched you work through a design with somebody and I, I see you help how do I put this? Like the, the two strengths come together and you're able to create a design that's greater than the sum of its parts. And you're able, you're able to pull out, I think the real strengths of an idea because you already have a really vast knowledge of how you might make or manufacture it. But you also don't seem limited by that because you're always pushing the boundaries of how to manipulate materials. I don't know. I'm really impressed with the way that you work with people and are able to like, get to the core of the idea and then really coach it into the best possible version of itself. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I will say that like being, you know, what I am design director, I guess, right. My, it's not, my job is not really that of a gatekeeper. My job is really a collaborator and maybe a coach. I do like what you said about sort of seeing the core of an idea, and that is really the first thing I try to do, which is just sort of identify what makes an idea special. And I love working with outside designers who bring in the seed of some brilliant idea, right? Because I don't mm-hmm. I don't think it's my role to create that seed. But I like to be in the process of nurturing it, and I like to understand how counsel's unique capabilities can shape it. And I like working with people who like to... To, to do that collaboration with me. So you're involved with, I mean, absolutely every aspect of running the council brand, even the sort of mundane, unpleasant stuff. Yeah, especially every- that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's just a lot of admin and, you know, everything that takes to keep a business up and running. And we just talked about some of your strengths, but it's hard. Like not everybody is good at everything. What do you wish you could just push off your plate and onto somebody else's? Or what do you think, if you could relieve yourself of some particular duties, what do you think would help you maximize your strength? I guess that's a better way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, I, I wish, well, I wish I had a chief operating officer. Mm. Uh, I think somebody who could sort of run the day-to-day uh, of this business, that would be amazing, right? Because I, I, I can kind of do it. I don't enjoy it, and I know I'm not really good at it. I, I think... I'm good at pushing the creative process forward. I'm good at engineering products even, and I think that's fun for me too. And I think I have a pretty clear vision of of what to do as a brand here. Mm -hmm. Um, But the day-to-day nuts and bolts of it, it's sort of difficult. I I will say this though, there's, I mean, in every company, I think there's a tension between vision and operations or just sort of the profit and loss of it, right? So, I mean, everybody's talked about companies selling out and, artists selling out and you know that's that's the tension there right i i certainly want to sell as much product as we can but 
I do recognize that I'm often going to make bad business decisions in service of the brand or bad business decisions in, in service of doing something beautiful. So, you know, for now, I like to be the guy who has the freedom to make bad business decisions also. But, um, but it sure would be nice to have somebody to just sort of still run the nuts and bolts. I would like that too. I know. I was just going to say, me too, me too. <laughs> <laughs> right. But if they come along and, you know, there's a lot of money in ugly chairs, right? We could probably make an ugly chair and sell a lot of them. And uh, it'd be great to have the money, but you dilute the brand. So who's going to make those decisions? Well, I'd prefer it to be me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you could make an ugly chair because you talked at the very beginning about you can only do what you can throw your heart behind. You know, we've heard you talk for almost an hour now about your passion for moving American design forward. I don't think capturing the feel of America in the form of an object is a niche operation. It's just a pioneering one. You're carving the path as opposed to following it. I've always known that we're designing for a small minority of the people. If you look at a company that's sort of run by their bottom line, they're going to do their best to sell as much stuff as they can. And in order to do that, you have to water it down a little bit. So if most companies are designing something that most people in America think is fine, just fine, I really want to design something that 10% of Americans, you know, fall in love with. So I know that you gravitated to the design industry in part because of all your skills, but also in part because of the community. You like doing business within the design community what is it about the design community that appeals to you? Well, I think it's everybody's motivation is really to do something great, right? Do something great and do something beautiful. One thing I always say is that the best thing about design is there's no money in it, right? Because if it was all about money, it would attract a certain kind of person who's really out, it to, out, out for the idea of making money. But because there isn't a ton of money in this business, I know that everybody's intentions are pure. And there's a purity about just sort of making the best product, making the most beautiful thing. So that in itself is already something I love, you know, about this industry is, is being able to work with people who are motivated almost entirely by their passion. I also wanted to ask you about being in San Francisco and being a furniture design company, because San Francisco is mostly known for its tech companies um, and like billions and billions of dollars. Could you talk a little bit about the design community in San Francisco and how it's different or the same as other design communities? There's a certain kind of designer here who makes money designing devices, but who feeds their heart by designing things like furniture. And it's a lucky place for me to be. I get to work with a lot of these people who have designed an iconic phone and get a check every quarter that pays for their house, but uh, really wants to design some furniture here and there as well. So there, there are two aspects to that community. I mean, one is... There's no desperation, I guess, but, but the other is there's an abundance mentality. There's, there's so much good work here for them that they cooperate as well. There's a real openness to working with others, and there's a, there's a purity to their intention. Yeah, so it's a, nice, it's a nice place to be. I always have somebody to bounce something off of. They always bounce their ideas off of each other. I work with many designers in the Bay Area, but I also work with many designers outside the Bay Area, and I would say that just in terms of the kinds of people they are, they're, they're generally the same as well. I know the Bay Area is unique, but I also think that kind of designer is the designer that I gravitate towards working with. I know that you work a lot. <laughs> 
I know you personally, so I know that you like to surf and, and, a, and a few things like that. But I also know that when you're not working, you're still working through your hands. You, you do projects all day, every day. So even when you're not prototyping something for counsel or a client, you're working on home improvement projects, custom surfboards, novel contraptions. And I want to know what type of brain is in your skull that needs to keep expressing its thought process through your hands. For me, playing is to make stuff. I love projects and I love making things and I love learning how to make things and adding to my toolkit. So is it about joy and play? Yeah, it's joy and play. And to me, I get a lot of joy out of creation Mm -hmm. um, and invention. Um, Yeah. You know, so that's what I always wanted to be as an inventor. Actually, if you asked me as a kid what I wanted to be, it was an inventor, like, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was a movie <laughs> that I watched as a kid. And this guy made a flying car, and that was what I always wanted to be when I grew up. And I think that's still what I do for fun, right? Like, what can I create that hasn't been created before? Well, I think you certainly have the characteristics of that. I mean, you love design, you love making things, but you also have like this very analytical engineering you know, part of you, and they all seem to come together. To me, a product is, and an inherent part of the product is also the process of how it's made, I guess. So I don't just pluck a beautiful object out of space and then want to just sort of see it realized. I love to think about how it's made, and often how it's made has something to do with how it looks at the end. Um, So I love to think about that process. So, you know, that's the kind of thing I do for fun is to sort of work my brain through that and go through that process and understand how things are made. I'd like to invent the ways things are made too, but to me that's interesting. How can you do this? How do you get from point A to point B? Right. You're a problem solver. <laughs> we have a joke amongst the two of us where I joke that his catchphrase is, I fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> you should get him a gift with that on the t-shirt and make him wear it. Well, we also call him, my family has a name for him. We call him Sir Fix-A-Lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the rest of the story is usually I fixed it because I broke it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't leave well enough alone, that's for sure. I think you do like to break it so you can tinker with it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I have boxes of things that I've taken apart. As a kid, I used to just take things apart. How does it work? I would take it apart and then not necessarily be able to put it together again. Mm. It's the best way to like see how things are built is to take them apart. I love that. That's why I think all designers should have a sense of making things. Well, yeah, to me, that's what design is. That's the difference between design and art, right? Design is a practicality. It's got to be made. If it's got to be made, that's part of the design. So what's going on with Council? What do you have coming up? Is there a new project you want our listeners to know about? We, we introduced three products at the last ICFF. One was a, uh, a stool uh, called the Drift Stool, done with a San Francisco design firm called Branch. I'm really excited about that piece. We're just starting to make it in production. I think it's a beautiful piece. We also introduced a sofa collection with a designer named Brad Ascalon, who's based in New York. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> not really sure exactly how to how to pitch these things, but that's another beautiful piece. I mean, every year we, we do a couple of new things, and uh, they become my new favorite pieces, and, uh, and that's another one. We're working on two new pieces, and... Um, I'm pretty excited about both of them. I'll be designing a new piece. I, I don't know if I can describe it other than to say that it, it it goes back to what I like about taking things and dismantling them and putting them back together in a different way. Ooh, that's intriguing. 
when that is an official product, that will be basically an expanded view of Derek Chen and his essence. <laughs> the, uh, the furniture embodiment of Derek Chen. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, where can our listeners find you on the web and on social media? Well, our website is uh, counciledesign.com, C-O-U-N-C-I-L, uh, as opposed to people who design things for lawyers. Uh, that's also our Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Council Design. Well, all right. Thanks, Derek. <laughs> sure. No, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, you guys. Appreciate it. Well, all right. That's a man on a mission. Uh, also yeah. happens to be my man. <laughs> Your man on a mission. Yeah. <laughs> I like that he talked so much about American design because it's not something we talk about and not a lot of people are talking about it um, enough, I think, and exploring what that essence is. And and I think it's, it's hard. And I think a lot of people don't talk about it because it's very difficult. Like, y- you know, because... America is a place that where lots of people live who came from other places, they kind of bring their society and their culture and their language and their, you know, everything with them. And then it just becomes this like, like a hybrid of, of all kinds of things. And there, so you really can't like put your finger on what it is. Absolutely. But, and I think this is kind of what he was getting at, or at least this is my take on it. When all those people come to this particular geographic location and have an experience that's shaped by our government and shaped by all of the different influences and the diversity of the people here and the cultural diversity and the values of acceptance and tolerance and education and, you know, democracy, that creates an experience. And that experience gets reflected in the objects that we surround ourselves with. And so designing objects that capture that experience and enhance it or work synergistically with it is kind of what American design is about. Like, it really hit me when he was talking about, oh, Italian design is all low, and then you go there and have an espresso, and you get it. Like, right. like it reflects a certain way that, that people are, a, a cultural anthropology. And I think American design can be very in danger of losing its identity when we start to homogenize too much, or we start to think about our diverse population as being something that doesn't hold us together. I think is absolutely what holds the American experience together is the diversity. He also said optimism was an an experience that a lot of people had. And you had mentioned our interview with Daniel Liebeskind, and he has that optimism and he infuses that in all of the work that he does. And it has a direct correlation to his experience coming to the United States for the first time. So I do feel like that is a thread that kind of goes through everything that comes out of you know our design community yeah you know i'm glad you brought that up because that's definitely something i see in in derek personally when we talked about him sort of getting involved with the seed of an idea i think you have to be optimistic in order to grow that seed into something beautiful you have to believe that it it can and will be something better than just the seed and I think that optimism is kind of the essence of Derek and why he's so good at what he does. Yeah, I think everybody needs to go out and start planting and growing seeds. (laughs) Yeah. 
I was just thinking, I think about this every single day when I drop my daughter off at school. I pass this new development in my neighborhood and it's either apartments or townhomes or condos or something. So it's multifamily housing. And there's two buildings next to each other. And one of them looks like it came from like maybe Tuscany. And then one next to it looks like it came out of like, like brutalism meets more modern architecture. Mm, it's very yeah. square. Yeah. And they don't look anything like each other. And I can't, and they don't look anything like anything else though, which is why I'm having a hard time describing what they look like architecturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're totally disparate. But they're right next to each other and they're part of this same neighborhood and it's so weird. And every day I drive by and I'm like, how are people from the future going to look at us when this is the architecture we are leaving behind? (laughs) And it makes me so sad. (laughs) And I'm like, I want to be optimistic, but it's like, oh, you builders, all you want to do is make money and you don't care about architecture. It's frustrating. You shouldn't make something and put it into the world unless you really have some sort of hope that you're making something iconic, right? Otherwise, you're just making stuff that's bound for the landfill, disposable stuff. It's only the iconic stuff that, that we end up keeping. That's the stuff we hand down from generation to generation, and that's right. the stuff that ends up in the history books informing the future generations. Yeah, putting things into the world, I think you do really have to think about the future of that object, that that it's going to live beyond you and your future generations, and think about, you know, what that means and what kind of a story that tells as it gets passed down and, and you know, switches hands over the years. So yeah, it's definitely something to think about. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Clever on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts like Radio Public, Stitcher, Google Play, or something else we don't know about but you gotta go find it anyway it's probably there also you can go to cleverpodcast.com to learn more about Derek in the show notes and see images of him and his work and while you're there sign up for our newsletter so you never miss an episode and you get a heads up on any special programming or promotions we might be doing and connect with us on Twitter Instagram and Facebook at Clever Podcast because we always love to hear from you I'm serious, you guys. We really, really love to hear from you. It makes our day. We've actually gotten a couple of emails that made us tear up. So you guys are awesome. So awesome. (laughs) This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Model of Your Studio with music by L1011. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.